You're a silly little boy, said the Lord of the Flies. Just an ignorant, silly little boy. Simon moved his swollen tongue, but said nothing. Don't you agree, said the Lord of the Flies. Aren't you just a silly little boy? Simon answered him in the same silent voice. Well then, said the Lord of the Flies. You'd better run off and play with the others. They think you're batty. You don't want Ralph to think you're batty, do you? You like Ralph a lot, don't you? And Piggy? And Jack? Simon's head was tilted slightly up. His eyes could not break away, and the Lord of the Flies hung in space before him. What are you doing out here all alone? Aren't you afraid of me? Simon shook. There isn't anyone to help you. Only me. And I'm the beast. Simon's mouth labored, brought forth audible words. Pig's head on a stick. Fancy thinking the beast was something you could hunt and kill, said the head. For a moment or two, the forest and all the other dimly appreciated places echoed with the parody of laughter. You knew, didn't you? I'm part of you. Close, close, close. I'm the reason why it's a no-go, why things are what they are. The laughter shivered again. Come now, said the Lord of the Flies. Get back to the others, and we'll forget the whole thing. Simon's head wobbled. His eyes were half-closed, as though he were imitating the obscene thing on the stick. He knew that one of his times was coming on. The Lord of the Flies was expanding like a balloon. This is ridiculous. You know perfectly well you'll only meet me down there. So don't try to escape. Simon's body was arched and stiff. The Lord of the Flies spoke in the voice of a schoolmaster. This has gone quite far enough, my poor, misguided child. Do you think you know better than I do? There was a pause. I'm warning you. I'm going to get angry. Do you see? You're not wanted. Understand? We're going to have fun on this island. Understand? We're going to have fun on this island, so don't try it on, my poor misguided boy, or else. Simon found he was looking into the vast mouth. There was a blackness within, a blackness that spread. Or else, said the Lord of the Flies, we shall do you. See? Jack and Roger and Maurice and Robert and Bill and Piggy and Ralph, do you see? Simon was inside the mouth. He fell down and lost consciousness. So, that's where we ended with part two of last week. And I wanted to start by reading that exchange between Simon and the Lord of the Flies, the Beast. Um, Now that I've read that part, I'm trying to decide if three episodes and three hours is going to be too much 
for these book reviews. I don't know if there's there's quite the market for for this kind of thing. I know that a lot of times with uh, kind of analysis online on YouTube or something, or Cliff Notes or Spark Notes, if you want to learn about a novel, somebody will do it in a clever little video in like 10 minutes. I've always had a problem with that because there's 10 minutes isn't enough time to tell you about a novel, especially a novel like this. And so I don't really know another way to do it, but I feel like listening to Three Hours of Lord of the Flies is something that a whole bunch of people probably like aren't aren't really looking for. I don't know if it's going to be... It's definitely not going to make me like popular and famous, but I, I don't know. I feel like it's needed. I feel like it's a good direction for the podcast after, uh, after reading my books. And so that's what I'm going to keep on doing, even though I haven't decided yet if it's a good idea to get, you know, more people listening and all that. But anyway, that's just my thoughts as I start here. Uh, we're starting off in chapter nine and we're starting off with that scene and at the end of the scene, Simon passes out. And that's the end of the chapter. And we'll, then we have a scene change. And chapter 9 opens up with that that storm that was building. And chapter 8 is getting closer and more foreboding. And it's extremely hot and humid and still on the island. And it, all of the boys kind of know that something is coming, that a storm is coming. And in all literature, anytime there's this storm coming, it's about more than the weather, of course. <laughs> then we switch back to Simon. And Simon wakes up in the clearing after, his, after he passed out, after his interaction with the beast. And he stands up. His, uh, when he passed out, his nose, the, the vessels in his nose all broke open. And blood has run down the entire front of his face and his chest. And he's dehydrated, and he's dirty, and he's tired, and he looks terrible. And yet, he speaks aloud to the silence, answering the beast's kind of threat in the end of the last chapter. And he says, what else is there to do? And that is Simon's response to the beast. That's Simon's challenge to the beast. Simon is going to act heroically because he feels it's the only thing he can do. And I want to back up really quick because I've heard other analysis of, of this. And people kind of try to take the supernatural aspect out of Lord of the Flies by... It's played off like Simon is maybe suffering from dehydration and, and a heat stroke and and something's wrong with him physically. And that's definitely true. But there's there's this other kind of there's this other view of Simon that all the boys have that he's crazy. And by this point in the novel, you the reader are sitting there reading Simon interacting with a demon and up until this point in the novel nothing kind of supernatural or unexplainable or mystic has happened yet so you also have this this moment of okay is Simon actually crazy are the boys right has he cracked has he gone off the deep end 
And most people read it that way and say, yeah, this is, you know, this is a, this is a way that Simon has kind of interpreted what human nature and the beast is because he, he finally kind of breaks and he, he has this hallucination. But I do not really subscribe to that. And I think that Golding gives you a hint of this, but like all good writers, he doesn't just hand it to you or say it out loud. In the preceding chapter to this one, there's a moment between Simon and Ralph, where Ralph is standing by the edge of the ocean, and he's looking out over the, like, not over the lagoon, he's looking out over the raw ocean and and seeing the power of the ocean and how hopeless their their station is. And Ralph Ralph has this moment where he doesn't think it's possible that he's going to make it home. And he thinks that the boys are going to die there. And he doesn't say this out loud, but that's what he's thinking while he's sitting there. And suddenly Simon shows up at his elbow, and Simon tries to reassure him that things are going to be okay, that they're going to be they're going to be rescued and everything's going to turn out all right. And Ralph uh, has this response of he calls him crazy. And he's like, you're, you know, you're, you're batty, you're nuts. He doesn't believe what Simon is saying is the truth. And Simon gets intensely serious. And he looks Ralph in the eyes. And he says, I am not crazy. And this is, I think, a message to you, the reader, that you should understand and remember that Simon is not crazy. And it's important and it's on purpose that this scene happens right before Simon comes face to face with the beast. And so when Simon is talking to this demon, you're supposed to remember a couple pages before where Simon told you, I'm not crazy. And that's how I read it. And that's honestly the way I think it should be read. Um, So in my opinion, and I think... The way Golding wrote it, if you really, if you can have good enough reading comprehension to understand it, he's telling you that Simon's not crazy. What Simon is interacting with is actually happening, and so that's my that's my soapbox on that. Simon's not crazy. This is he's he's not just hallucinating. He is the only one who knows. He's the only one that discovers the beast, and. The beast does not want to be discovered, and so the beast threatens Simon and tells him to keep his mouth shut. And Simon's response, again, now we're jumping back to the present, he says, there's nothing else to do. And so, Simon does the only thing he can do. He climbs the mountain. And he finds the dead pilot. Now, the biblical symbolism, again, is very heavy in this part of the book. Why does Simon have to climb the mountain? It's like Moses going up the mountain to talk with God. It's like Jesus on the Mount of Olives. Simon has received, he climbs the mountain in order to receive a message, receive the truth. And the truth is that mankind, in this case the children, the truth that they need to hear is the truth of what the beast that they all think is the beast truly is, and it's this dead pilot. And so, Simon learns the truth, and his next mission is to bring the truth to the boys in order to stop 
what's about to happen. Then the scene changes and we go to Jack's tribe. And Jack has become a chief. And all the boys are congregated on the beach. And there's a feast going on. And everything about the feast, about the ceremony, uh, is symbolic. Again, Jack is sitting on a throne. He is wearing a crown that's been kind of weaved together from leaves. There are servants bringing him drinks. Those who are eating at the feast are doing so by his leave. Ralph and Piggy come to the feast, kind of begrudgingly because of the allure of the meat, and once they get there and they eat a little bit, Jack basically tries to take the rest of the people away from Ralph. And he asks who wants to join his tribe, and Ralph challenges him. Uh, But again, Ralph's grip on the boys is starting to wane. He doesn't really have what he had before. And he's still trying to speak to them with, like, a reason and logic. And Jack's beyond that. And the storm is approaching. And Ralph logically asks the boys what they're going to do without any shelter if they're going to join Jack's tribe. And Jack's answer shows the primitivism that the boys have embraced. He says, we'll just do our dance, our ceremonial pig dance. And so that's what they start to do. As it gets dark, as the lightning starts to crash, as the, the raindrops start to fall, for, the, for a feeling of security and safety, the boys all start to join in circles of a dance. And this dance is darker and more kind of fevered than the ones before. And it descends into this chaotic, hypnotizing, hysterical madness. It's just absolute savagery. And the boys like circle and they're wheeling below the booming sky and they're chanting and you know that violence is coming. And even Ralph and Piggy are forced to kind of, well not forced, they they decide to join into the circle because it's the only place where there's security from the lightning and the rain. And as this insane, chaotic, savage dance reaches its highest point of intensity, Simon stumbles out of the forest. And he is, you know, still covered in blood. He's exhausted. He looks frightening. And he is an outsider coming in from outside the protection of the circle. And what does Simon bring? Simon comes forward bearing the truth. And he tries to to tell them but they're not listening. And this is where Simon becomes the Christ figure, the literary Christ figure. Because like Christ, like Socrates, like Gandhi, Simon's peaceful message of like truth is met with base savagery, is met with violence. The boys fall on him, they attack him, they literally tear at him with their teeth and their fingernails. And Simon becomes a martyr because they kill him. And this is how he becomes the Christ figure. He comes bearing the truth about, you know, about the Lord of the Flies, about human nature, about sin. Uh, And they kill him. 
um, beyond all the other biblical imagery in Lord of the Flies, this is this is kind of the biggest part that's important and it's painful. But you you you're supposed to understand that all of the boys participate in the death of Simon. Every single boy gets a piece of Simon. Just just as Christ takes on all the sins of mankind and he's martyred himself for the sake of all humanity, Simon is martyred by all of the boys. No one escapes responsibility. Um, and even Piggy and Ralph are involved in it. And it's a it's it's a violent scene, but you don't see it up close. It's very dark, and all you kind of hear is kind of the you know wailing and gnashing of teeth until everybody stumbles away from Simon's body and Simon is dead. And in the very end of the chapter, there's this very kind of prosy, vague wording where we see this scene where Simon, the tide comes in and the moon is shining off the tide and it looks as if there are these creatures that carry him away. And they're supposed to... uh, they're supposed to represent kind of angels carrying Simon away to heaven. And that is how that chapter ends. And so, without Simon, of course, there's not going to be this reveal of the truth to the rest of the boys. And worse yet, right after they kill Simon, the storm picks up the parachute of the dead pilot on top of the mountain and it kind of swings the dead pilot down the mountain and through the middle of all the boys, and it's horrifying to all of them, and it scatters all of them into the into the jungle, and the dead pilot swoops out to sea, never to be seen again. So now there's no proof of the of the pilot, and not only do all the boys believe in the beast, it's been completely reinforced. And there's no hope really now in them learning the truth. And that's end of chapter 9. Beginning of chapter 10, all the boys are kind of trying to come to terms with what has happened. And there's still two tribes, Ralph's tribe and Jack's tribe. Now, Ralph's tribe is exceedingly small by this point. All it is is Ralph, Piggy, Sam, and Eric. And that's it. Other than the little ones, and by this point in the story, like the little ones don't even count. The big ones aren't taking care of them. The little ones are kind of on their own. So Ralph's tribe is Ralph, Piggy, Sam, and Eric. And Ralph, in the beginning of chapter 10, is nearing a sort of insane hysteria. Uh, and all of Ralph's tribes tries to, they're trying to process the death of Simon. And Ralph tells Piggy, like, he comes out with it and says, like, what happened was murder. We we murdered Simon, is kind of where he goes with it. And Piggy tells him to shut up, uh, tells him that's not what happened. Piggy blames Simon for it, says he shouldn't have come walking out like that. Um, and then in the end, they all find it easier to pretend that they had nothing to do with it, which is a very typical human response. Other people are evil and savage, but I'm not a part of that. Jack's tribe, on the other hand, also denies it, but they deny it in a different way. Jack, Roger, and the rest, they deny Simon's death as, like, uh, they say it was the beast in disguise. And they shroud it in kind of magic. 
and they didn't they didn't kill it because the beast can't be killed and their answer to what has happened is to stay on the right side of the beast and to continue this worship of the beast and so kind of unknowingly they become accidentally a sort of satanic death cult which side note i think is how most of the time people end up worshiping the devil is unknowingly i i think satanism and death worship is something that it's not really done on purpose a lot of times people people don't set out to worship the devil but uh they end up doing it anyway whether it is you know um whether it's the aztecs cutting people's hearts out in order to kind of you know gain the favor of their gods or if it's modern america uh doing everything we can to protect the the blood sacrifice of abortion um it's it's easy to get caught up in a satanic death cult without uh, without meaning to and that's what happens to jack so next in the story Jack and his savages come and they raid Ralph's tribe and they steal Piggy's glasses because they need a way to make fire and because there is no law on the island anymore, Jack feels like he can take what he wants. And uh, so that's what they do. Piggy's instinct when they attack is to protect the conch at all cost, which is funny because Piggy thinks Jack wants the conch. And it's ironic because as Jack's tribe has descended further into like taboo and, and magic and mysticism, Piggy has this irrational belief in the conch as some sort of magic as well. Like he, he's gone to that point as well when it comes to the conch. Even though he's not articulating it that way, that's, that's where he's at. So Jack is only after the glasses because he's after that piece of knowledge uh, you know, technology to start fire. And that's about, uh, and once he steals Piggy's glasses, Piggy becomes basically blind at this point. Piggy cannot see without his glasses. Now we get to the final chapters, 11 and 12. And before we get too deep into it, I want to talk about what we can learn from the novel. Uh, and I think on the podcast before I've talked about the wisdom that you can learn from books because that's what you're supposed to learn when it comes to good fiction, when it comes to literature. A lot of other stuff in school is about learning, uh, you know, all the STEM stuff, all the math, the sciences, is about gaining knowledge. And I, I would say even history in the way it's taught in most schools where they're trying to get you to memorize dates and stuff, is about accumulating knowledge. When really, um, the focus of literature, and I would say the focus of history too, should be more focused on gaining wisdom. And that's what you're supposed to take away from this book, Wisdom. And what you can learn from it is we're learning about human nature. And that's an important thing to learn especially for kids. And kids are who, this is why this book was, you know, put in the school curriculum in the first place, back when the people who ran the school system weren't slobbering demonic morons who wanted, you know, to talk about transgender stuff. But anyway, uh, 
it's just something that's lost on people nowadays. But education is more than learning just the mechanical things like math and grammar. There's a very important aspect in education that is about wisdom. Uh, we we don't just read books to improve reading comprehension. Read we read them to gain wisdom. But what do you what do you do with that wisdom? What's the point? Uh, how important is it to really understand human nature? I don't really know how to articulate that to you in a sentence. But if you if you look at the book, like how fast did the island of boys? all of whom weren't yet old enough to have gained any wisdom, how fast did it go to hell? Why did it go to hell? It's the wisdom that is this bulwark against both savagery and tyranny. The more wise we are collectively as a group, the less likely savagery and tyranny are. And I talked about this a long time ago, it seems like, in that uh, savagery and tyranny episode. But, uh... I just want to touch on it briefly again. For the entire history of the world, the average man or woman lived under either savagery or tyranny. Tyranny tyranny if they lived under an organized government, and savagery if they had no organized government. And it wasn't until the Reformation and the Enlightenment and the Age of Revolution that all of this kind of changed. And... The reason this novel is important, the reason we read it, is because this is kind of the crowning jewel of Western civilization, is our understanding of human nature that came around in the kind of from about the 1700s on through the 1900s. When Adam Smith came up with his ideas about the economy and capitalism, they were built on the idea of humans being inherently self-interested. And this is a Judeo-Christian understanding of human nature. When the Founding Fathers of America built the system of government and centered it around natural rights, they built that on a Judeo-Christian understanding of human nature. These ideas, these movements, built the success in the civilization that we all live in. Because we, as a society, we understood our weaknesses and our flaws, and we designed our systems of government an economy to minimize those weaknesses and flaws. But there were other ideas that came out during the Enlightenment um, that kind of disagreed with us this idea. And we talked about Rousseau in part two and his idea of primitive man being inherently good. And you also had Karl Marx who claimed that human nature was not fixed or inherent Uh, And he thought that we could change human nature by changing society, which is what the progressive movement in the United States was built on. This idea that human nature is malleable and we can change it. And of course, that is wrong. And the result of people trying to, to implement this wrong idea, starting from a place that's philosophically incorrect... It never ends well. And I don't know if most people listening to this podcast can look around our society and our culture today and see that there are a lot of things going wrong with it. And my argument is that the one of the biggest roots of all of those problems 
is this idea that we can change or alter our human nature. And if you think about all of these things that that are causing kind of societal decline, um, the big one right now in 2022 is gender theory. And is there anything more kind of openly saying, like, you can change who you are fundamentally than saying, you know, if you are biologically inherently a man, you can just chop off your dick and become a woman. This is the same idea just taken to a, to basically an extreme. Um, and I don't, I don't know why this was allowed to happen or how it happened. I think it just, I think it's kind of the biblical story of, of the Tower of Babel. This is why empires never last. It's why every civilization eventually kind of crumbles is because we get bigger and more influential and then we kind of get too arrogant for our own good and end up crumbling. Um, but it's never good when this happens. The only thing that ever happens is the destruction of liberty and freedom and financial gain and religious freedom, economic freedom. The only thing that ever happens when we, when we try to, to rewrite the laws of human nature is the loss of all of these things that we had. Uh, because the people at the top are always going to act on their own greedy self-interest because that's what humans are. And they've done that since the beginning of time. Um, and some of, just a few things that I'm talking about here, like uh, postmodernism, that philosophical idea, neo-Marxism, democratic socialism, critical race theory, uh, modern gender theory, any other critical theory, all of these movements are built on a rejection of human nature. So I ask you again, what what do you do with the wisdom you gain from learning about human nature? Will you resist a bunch of stupid ideas that end up having a, a direct and, and bad impact on society? All right, chapter 11. Chapter 11 is called Castle Rock. And it's called Castle Rock because that's where Jack goes and makes his tribe's headquarters. Uh, It opens up, Ralph is sitting beside this dying fire. And like the rest of the boys, Ralph is on the very fringe of sanity. Uh, He crouches by the fire and he can't get it lit again. It's completely out and there's nothing he can do. And so Ralph's tribe decides they have to go confront Jack because they have to have the fire. The fire is the only hope it's this symbol of hope for rescue. And so Ralph and Piggy and Sam and Eric set out to confront Ralph or confront Jack. And as they go, Piggy carries the conch. And of course, Piggy carries the conch. The conch is order. The conch is the rules. The conch is government and the authority of government. And it's always the piggies of society that cling most tightly to the conch almost to the point of believing that it has, like, mystical power. The conch is all Piggy has. Um, And the real truth, though, is that how much power does the conch actually have? Well, it only has the power that we put into it. And when the chips are down, 
when a war kicks off, when order breaks down, the, the piggies of the world don't suddenly turn into Ralph and grab a spear. They are dumbfounded. They can't believe it. And they cling to the conch to save them. And what happens to them? Well, spoiler alert, they die. So Ralph and Piggy and Sam and Eric show up at Jack's Castle Rock. And Ralph makes his final plea for civilization. He tells them that they have to have fire because smoke equals a ship and a ship equals rescue. It's as simple as that and Ralph puts it very simply. It's the only way to return to civilization. But the savages don't want to listen. And Ralph and Jack finally come to blows. First, they kind of, uh, there's some posturing where they're puffing up, and then they use their spears to kind of sword fight, um, and then they fist fight, and it gets serious. And uh, just as that fight reaches a climax, Roger, who's on the top of Castle Rock, leans on this lever that is set under a giant boulder, and he sends the boulder thundering down Castle Rock onto kind of the rock bridge that leads to the island. And this boulder hits Piggy, kind of a glancing blow, and knocks him from the bridge. And as it does, it hits the conch that's in Piggy's hands head on, and the conch explodes. It shatters. And the words that Golding used... He says the conch ceased to exist. And this is the end of order on the island. It's the victory of savagery over civilization. And Piggy falls to his death. He lands on this table rock, this altar-like rock. And his death is even more violent than Simon's because we see it. He lands on the rock. His head bust open and his brains come out and he's laying there twitching on this very ominously altar-like rock and he's basically it's another sacrifice to the beast and the he lays there for a second twitching the water comes in and kind of covers the rock up and when the water leaves again piggy's gone and as soon as Piggy's gone, Jack, first off, he, he says that, like, he meant to do that. Like, we're serious. We meant that. We're glad that happened. And as soon as Piggy's gone and the conch is gone, Jack and the rest of the boys are overcome with this sort of horrifying, bloodthirsty mania. And Jack throws his spear at Ralph with the intent to kill him. And Ralph has to flee for his life. And then Jack and Roger and the other boys are kind of left. They retreat back to the Castle Rock. And Roger has this new horrifying magic over him. Because he is now a, a murderer. And he's, he's more frightening now than even Jack is to the other boys. And it's hinted already that Jack is going to be challenged in his dominance by Roger. And then we get to the last chapter. And the last chapter is called The Cry of the Hunters. And as the chapter opens, Ralph is kind of sneaking, running through the forest. And he comes up on a couple of little ones 
who are in this clearing. And as soon as they see Ralph, they scatter. And it's as if they already know that civilization and order are completely gone and savagery is now in control and the little ones have become like prey animals driven by fear. Ralph continues running through the forest and he runs smack dab into, you guessed it, the Lord of the Flies. He comes face to face with the the architect of all his suffering and the pig's head is still on the sit is still on the stick in Simon's clearing but now it is just a skull it's been com- completely kind of cleaned up by the the flies and the and the bugs and the and all that and Ralph stands there looking at it and it seems to be smiling at him it even says like golding writes that it is smiling at Ralph and of course the beast doesn't speak to Ralph, because the beast, the Lord of the Flies, is getting exactly what he wants. But still, Ralph is disgusted and frightened by what he sees. The The hairs raise up on the back of, the, of his neck. He sees it, and he, he knows that there's something there, and he can't figure out what it is. And he, he lashes out in, like, rage, and he punches the skull... And it falls down and it breaks perfectly in two, but it's not destroyed. It just makes it bigger and it makes the smile of the beast all the wider. And so Jack, no, Ralph, keep getting them mixed up. So Ralph takes the spear that the, that the pig's head was on and now he has a weapon. Because that's who Ralph is. Ralph isn't like Piggy. When everything goes to hell... Ralph doesn't cling to the conch. Ralph takes up a spear because he knows it's it's kill or be killed at this point. Uh, Ralph's only Ralph decides that his only chance is to maybe sneak back over to Jack's castle and try to talk to Sam and Eric or somebody. And so he sneaks up and he talks to Sam and Eric, and Sam and Eric, who were captured by Jack's crew. They they won't they won't join Ralph. They they explain to Ralph that if Jack or Roger find him there, they're going to kill him. And if they find out that Sam and Eric helped him, something really bad will happen to them. Finally, they shove like a piece of food in Ralph's hand and tell him to leave, just as somebody is coming up to kind of check on them on their duty. And Ralph runs off, and there's this kind of raised voices where it's it's kind of cl- it's not clear, but it seems like somebody finds out that Sam and Eric were talking to Ralph, and there's an argument and screaming and crying that happens in the Castle Rock. But we're seeing the whole story through Ralph's eyes now, so we don't know what's going on. But before Ralph leaves, Sam and Eric tell him that. Roger has sharpened a stick at both ends, and this is Ralph's fate. Jack and Roger are going to hunt him, kill him, cut his head off as an offering to the beast, and very possibly eat him. It's the ultimate savage act, and so for Ralph, it's the ultimate fear of humanity. And then Ralph tries to hide. The following day, all of Jack's tribe spreads out across the island, 
and they find Ralph in this bush very close to the castle rock. They roll a few rocks down on him. They don't they don't hit him. Um, and finally, Ralph is forced to run, and he runs through the jungle, and the entire chapter is horror and terror and fear, and there's not enough time to think, and Ralph becomes... Uh, defensively just as violent as Jack and his crew. He stabs several people, several, two or three. He stabs two or three people all throughout this last chapter that are trying to capture him. And because of how chaotic the scene is, we have no idea if those people live or die. We have no idea if it's hinted that either Sam or Eric has been killed by Roger because suddenly... There's only one twin in the entire book. You've never seen the twins apart, and suddenly there's only one. So there's all these this chaotic mess, and you don't know who's alive. You don't know who's dead. And then the tribe, Jack's tribe, sets the entire island on fire, trying to burn Ralph out. So Ralph runs through the forest, and instead of, if you remember back to chapter 1, Ralph is walking through the forest, and it's green and beautiful, and there's these tropical birds, and it's paradise. It's the Garden of Eden. In this last chapter, in chapter 12, Ralph runs through the same forest, and there isn't green trees. There's billowing flames and smoke all around him, and people screaming and chasing him and intend to kill him, and he's running for his life. And it goes from paradise, it goes from Eden to quite almost kind of a hell on earth for Ralph. And he runs and he runs and he finally manages to make it to the uh, beach. And this is where Ralph falters and he trips and he stumbles and falls. And he knows at this point that when he raises up, they're going to be on him and he's going to die. So this is the old, like he can't get away from them. He makes it to the beach, he falls, and he turns around ready to be killed by the boys. But something else happens. The end of this novel is in what, in literature they call it a deus ex machina. And that comes from these old Greek plays where when they got to the end of the play and there was no way for the hero to to win the Greeks would introduce a, a god character. A One of the Greek gods would descend from the top of the stage, sometimes like literally on a pulley system, they would drop them from ropes, and that god would become this miracle that kind of ties up the end of the story. It would resolve a plot... Um, by introducing this miracle, introducing this act of God. And that's how the that's how the book ends because when Ralph leans up and expects to see Jack or Roger with a spear stabbing him, instead he sees a navy uh captain. There's this guy standing in front of him in clean like white navy dress with a navy cap on. And it's somebody who looks very much like Ralph's own father. And again, very symbolic. There's this uh, 
this father figure that stands in front of him. And at first he is, he stands in judgment because he, at first he kind of thinks that the boys are playing a game. And he asks Ralph kind of jokingly, what it, like, have you guys been playing war? And he asks him if anybody's been killed. And he asks it as a joke. And Ralph said, Ralph answers him and says, yes, two people have been killed. Now, we know for sure that Ralph is absolutely wrong. It's not just two people. It's not just Piggy and Simon. We know that at the very least, the boy with the mulberry birthmark died early in the book. And we know with almost certainly there's been several little ones that have died since we got here because nobody's been taking care of them. They had the giant fire on the side of the mountain. This other fire that's currently burning up the entire island. We know that there's a lot of people dead. Uh, and the three people that uh, Ralph stabbed with a spear. We don't know if they lived or not. So, but either way, he, he tells the Navy captain that, yes, people have died. And suddenly the, the Navy captain is very judgmental. And he chastises Ralph and the other boys. And he says, I would have thought that a, a group of British boys would have done better than this. And he, he's basically saying, I, I would have thought that civilized boys like you guys would have done better. And Ralph struggles to explain that things were good in the beginning and then everything fell apart. And then next, the guy shows him like understanding and grace. And he like puts his hand on his shoulder and, you know, it's going to be all right. So this Navy officer becomes the, the archetype of the father um, who is uh, both judgmental and full of grace and understanding. He becomes the, you know, the God, the father figure. And then, uh, after he wraps that up, the end of the novel is Ralph weeping. And the end of the novel says Ralph wept for innocence, for the end of innocence. Um, the book ends in these tears and they are not happy tears. Even though they've been saved, it's the thing that Ralph's been waiting for the entire time. Ralph is not weeping because of because he's going to live and because they're going to be rescued. Ralph is weeping because he has finally come to this understanding about the darkness of human nature, the darkness of man's heart. He's no longer innocent. His childhood has been taken away from him, and it's been replaced with this awful, dark knowledge of evil of what humans are capable of. And as soon as Ralph starts crying, all the rest of the boys kind of revert to this childhood state and they all start weeping. And the last line of the novel is, Ralph wept for the end of innocence, the darkness of man's heart, and the fall through the air of the true wise friend called Piggy. Now, everybody always compares this novel with Heart of Darkness, because Heart of Darkness is another British novel. It's also about human nature. Um, and Golding claims that he never read Heart of Darkness until after all, he already wrote this. And I think that's completely like possible and you should take a man at his word. Uh, and I think people sometimes don't. And they say, oh, he obviously was jump like using... Conrad when he wrote this who wrote Heart of Darkness but I think that they were just two intellectuals that grew up in that British culture of the 
of the post-Enlightenment world with an understanding of the truth of human nature and wrote kind of... The books are... They're not similar in storyline at all, but they're similar in the message that they give. Because Heart of Darkness ends with one of the characters dying and screaming the horror, the horror. And the 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 thought that you're left with is that he is dying and going to hell and he can see the fires of hell. And then Lord of the Flies ends with Ralph weeping bitterly because he understands how evil man can be. But... What about the Lord of the Flies? Ralph has this weeping epiphany at the end, um, but he, at least in what we read in the book, Ralph never learns that there was this sort of architect behind all his suffering, this thing that causes the darker side of humanity to thrive and overcome goodness. And it was precisely the ignorance of that thing being power whatever that causes the power to grow so golding is golding giving us a religious message at the end of the book it doesn't quite seem that way but uh that's the way i'm gonna tell you to take it if you ever talk to someone who has seen it and i mean really seen it they will tell you that evil is a thing that exists uh not like cancer or natural disasters or or terrible bad things that can happen, accidents, but actual, true, human evil exist. The things that humans do to one another that makes no logical sense and can only be described as evil. If you ever get a chance, you should talk to someone who has been at war, who's seen killing and combat up close, or, or you should read first-hand accounts about these things because there is absolute proof for the existence of evil that resides outside of the logical, outside of the evolutionary. The realm of, the realm of science is not able to explain. Uh, and there's no answer to it outside religious answers and kind of mystic answers. So we as humans... We do this thing where we just ignore it or pretend it doesn't exist until we are faced with it, right up close and personal. And most people, thats it's not until then that they admit its existence. And there's a problem with that. Because if you're someone who denies the existence of evil, uh, chances are, if you ever have the bad fortune of coming face to face with it, your chances of survival drop tremendously. You become piggy, and you're swallowed up by it. Or if you're lucky, you're like Ralph, and you can fight your way through it with your instincts, but still at the end, you're left with no understanding of why. The title of the book is Lord of the Flies, specifically because you aren't meant to ignore or forget about it. You are supposed to remember the Lord of the Flies, how he operates. You must know him and see him, because if you don't, you're left like Ralph, and you're lost, and you're confused. Or you're like Piggy, and you're dead. Or worst of all, you're like Jack, and you end up doing the bidding of evil unknowingly. 
And just like you aren't supposed to forget about the Lord of the Flies, you aren't supposed to get a, forget about Simon either. Because if the devil exists, and he's the source of the heart of darkness, then so does God. And he's the source of our divine spark, our capacity for faith, hope, and love. And that's my religi- religious message for the end of the novel. Um, where are we at? 52 minutes. I got it in under an hour. That's good. That means I have eight whole minutes to talk to you about other stuff. But uh, I'm not going to. Um, This was supposed to be like the end of May book study. And here it is, June 16th. It took me three episodes and two and a half weeks to get it all put in. Um, But I started off the episode saying if I don't know if this is kind of the best vehicle for this type of thing. But I'll tell you this, I don't know a lot of other people who are providing these sort of in-depth analysis of novels. Usually you get a couple paragraphs or you have to read the book or you watch a 10-minute video. And I think maybe, I don't know, especially for students, it might be good to, to have a, I don't know, it would take you if you were somebody who had no reading, you know, background, it's probably going to take you four or five hours to read Lord of the Flies, but are you going to understand all of it? Are you going to be able to draw all these conclusions that we talked about in these three episodes? Probably not. So I think there is something to be said for kind of long-form book analysis so that uh, you can you can understand what the book's about. So, that's where I'll leave you. That was uh, Part 3, Lord of the Flies. Next time, I don't know when I'm going to do it, but the next book study, I feel like uh, the best thing to do on the heels of Lord of the Flies is do another book that's about the devil. And I think books about the devil are important because the best way to, to kind of resist... The devil is by knowing who he is. And in my humble opinion, the greatest book ever written about the devil is Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy. And uh, I'm not just saying that because Cormac McCarthy is my favorite author, but uh, I think the next episode I'm going to dive into Blood Meridian. It's one of those books that... It's one of those books that it's very, very hard to read unless you are a devoted kind of literature nerd like me who's read a whole bunch of books. It's one of those books that if you are kind of a casual reader and you pick it up and you start to read it, you're not going to want to finish it. It's very, the the writing style is very poetic and prosy. The plot is kind of all over the place and doesn't flow as nicely as commercial novels it's kind of hard to understand. You have to know a little bit of, about history to really get the full effect. It's, it's a very difficult novel to read. But lucky for you, I've read it very, I don't know, six times or so. And so I'm going to give you an analysis of Blood Meridian so that you don't have to slog your way through it. And then you can feel really pretentious like I do and be able to talk about Cormac McCarthy because 
As much as I love Cormac McCarthy and all his novels, he does seem very pretentious. So, thank you for your time. I will catch you next time on the Capo Podcast.